God continues his unilateral resolve to keep his promise to bring forth Abraham's seed, now more specifically a Davidic king, who will reign under God over the whole world. And yet, there's no faithful son slash king who affects God's saving reign. This leads to the message of the prophets and the anticipation of a new covenant. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under His feet. My name is David Schrock, and today I'm introducing the second part of Steve Wellham's long-form essay, What is Progressive Covenantalism? In the first part, Steve outlined the hermeneutical commitments of progressive covenantalism. He also addressed the pre-fall covenant with Adam, the post-fall covenant with Noah, as well as the covenant with Abraham. Today, he will continue by looking at the covenant with Israel, mediated by Moses, the covenant with David, and finally the covenant made with Jesus, the covenant we know simply as the new covenant. Importantly, each of the previous covenants are preparing the way for this final new covenant. Indeed, in every case, the mediator of those old covenants fails, and the people of God fall. Accordingly, these covenants make demands upon the Old Testament saints that cannot be fulfilled. At the same time, they also point forward to a better covenant, even as they make promises that will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Indeed, as progressive covenantalism has argued, the progressive revelation of the covenants form the backbone of the Bible. And these covenants then bring into creation the kingdom of God, which the Father planned to give the Son before the foundation of the world. In this way, we might even say that progressive covenantalism is the unfolding of the covenant of redemption in redemptive history, a point that we will discuss on an upcoming podcast. For now, however, we're going to go from the old covenant with Moses to the new covenant with Christ. And from there, Steve Wellam will help us to understand the implications of the new covenant for the church today. So friends, listen carefully to Steve's long form, What is Progressive Covenantalism? Part 2 as it will help us to provide a solid foundation for understanding progressive covenantalism, which we believe best explains the biblical revelation. What is progressive covenantalism? Part two, written by Stephen J. Wellam and read by Kevin McClure. In the previous article, I began to discuss what progressive covenantalism is in four steps. So far, I've described one, some of its distinctive points, and two, some of its basic hermeneutical assumptions. In addition, I have three begun to summarize how it views the unfolding of God's eternal plan through the progression of the covenants, starting with the pre-fall creation covenant with Adam, the first post-fall covenant with Noah, and the Abrahamic covenant. In this article, I will finish the third step by picking up our discussion with the Mosaic covenant in order to discover how the covenants reach their fulfillment in the new covenant. Then I will conclude four by describing how all the covenants are fulfilled in Christ, thus highlighting how progressive covenantalism thinks of both continuity and discontinuity across the covenants. So picking up on point three, continuation of how God's plan unfolds through the covenants to Christ, the Mosaic covenant. In the Old Testament, the amount of space devoted to the Old Covenant or Mosaic covenant is vast. Yet, Scripture teaches that this covenant is not an end in itself. 
Scripture views it as temporary in God's plan, and thus when Christ comes as an entire covenant, it is fulfilled and Christians are no longer under it as a covenant. We see this in Galatians 3.15 to 4.7. What was its purpose? The answer is diverse, but centrally, it revealed an intensified sin and prepared God's people for Christ's coming. We see this in Romans 5, 20 through 21, Romans 7, 13, Galatians 4, 4. Also, three points are important in summarizing the role of the old covenant in God's plan. First, given its epochal slash covenantal context, God calls Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt and establishes a covenant with them because of his promises to Abraham. You look at Exodus 3, 6. You can also see Exodus 2, 24 through 25 and Deuteronomy 4, 36 through 38. In relation to the previous covenants, the old covenant reveals with greater clarity how Abraham's seed is narrowed to the nation of Israel. Israel as a nation, or goy in Hebrew, say this in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, is a corporate Adam as she fulfills that role to the nations. It is through Israel that God fulfills his promise of Genesis 3.15 to undo Adam's sin. Further proof of this truth is that Israel, as a nation, is called God's son in Exodus 4.22-23. That father-son relationship looks back to Adam, and it looks forward to the Davidic kings linking the covenants together. Israel, as a nation, is called to serve as God's son-priest image. And through this nation, God will bring blessing to the world. Second, the old covenant is a unit. Scripture doesn't partition the covenant into moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. Rather, it's a unit that governed Israel's life, and now in Christ is fulfilled. Also, as a unit, the covenant develops in greater detail a number of typological patterns that find their antitypical fulfillment in Christ and his people. For example, Israel, as a kingdom of priests, needs Levitical priests, i.e. the sons of Aaron, to represent them before God. Related to the priesthood is the entire tabernacle and temple and sacrificial system, which not only served as a means by which Israel dwelt in God's presence, but also pointed to their antitypical fulfillment in Christ and the full forgiveness of sin. See this in John 2, 19 through 22, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, and 7 through 10. The same is true of the role of the prophet and the anticipation of the king. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, Acts 3, 22 through 26, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, Romans 1 through through 4, and Hebrews 1, 5. Or also, the Passover and Exodus become patterns of a greater new Exodus and redemption to come all of which is fulfilled by Christ. Third, although the covenant is strongly bilateral, involving two parties, it is also more than this. It is not simply, as some have asserted, the republication of the covenant of creation, and thus merely a law covenant. No doubt, one of its key purposes is to reveal and increase Israel's sin. We see this in Galatians 3.19. But in God's unfolding plan, This covenant serves as a means to a larger end, namely to reveal, anticipate, and point forward 
to the need for the coming of Christ and the new covenant. In this sense, the Mosaic covenant is prophetic. Check out Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Matthew eleven thirteen, and Romans three twenty one. As with all the post-fall covenants, God is the one who unilaterally keeps his promises. Yet Israel is also called to be an obedient son. And like Adam, Israel disobeyed. The old covenant heightens the tension in how God's kingdom comes through fallen people. God will keep his promise to bring forth the offspring of Abraham now through an Israelite. And yet, Israel cannot produce the son and faithful covenant partner that God demands. This is why the Old Testament prophets anticipate a permanent, unbreakable new covenant to solve this dilemma. And we see this promise in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The Davidic Covenant. This covenant is the epitome of the Old Testament covenants. It brings the previous covenants to a climax in the king. There are two main parts to it. First, God's promises about the establishment of David's house forever. We see this in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. And second, the promises concerning the father-son relationship between God and the Davidic king. We see this in 2 Samuel 7, 14, also Psalm 2 and Psalm 89, 26 through 27. The sonship promise links the Davidic covenant to the previous covenants, and it anticipates in type the greater sonship of Christ. Previously, sonship applied to corporate Israel. We saw this in Exodus 4, 22 through 23. You also see it in Hosea 11, verse 1. But now, sonship is applied to the individual Davidic king, who in himself is true Israel. He then becomes the mediator of the covenant, thus representing God's rule to the people. See this in 2 Samuel 7, 22 through 24. And fulfilling the rule of Adam by effecting God's rule in the world. In 2 Samuel 7, 19b. God's redemptive plan was always to restore humanity's vice regency via the woman's seed. Genesis 3, 15. But now we know that this will occur through the Davidic king. This truth is borne out in many places that speak of the Davidic son as having a universal rule. Psalms 2, Psalms 8, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, also Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, and Isaiah chapters 53 through 55. Yet in Old Testament history, this was never realized, the Davidic son having a universal rule. As previous covenant mediators disobeyed, so the Davidic kings, but the hope of salvation is in them. God continues his unilateral resolve to keep his promise to bring forth Abraham's seed, now more specifically a Davidic king, who will reign under God over the whole world. And yet there's no faithful son slash king who affects God's saving reign. This leads to the message of the prophets and the anticipation of a new covenant. The new covenant. All of the Old Testament writing prophets are post-Davidic. Why is this significant? It's because their prophecies build on what God has already revealed through the covenants. 
the prophets proclaim an overall pattern of renewal by recapitulating the past history of redemption and projecting it into the future. The prophets announce that God will unilaterally keep his promises to save, but he will do so through a faithful Davidic king. You can check out Isaiah 7, 14, 9, 6 through 7, 11, 1 through 10, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, 49, 1 through 7, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, Isaiah 55, 3, 61, 1 through 3, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, Jeremiah 33, 14 through 26, Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24, and Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28. It's a lot of passages. In this king identified as the quote unquote servant of Yahweh, a new or everlasting covenant will come, and with it, the pouring out of the Spirit, Ezekiel 36, 37, Joel 2, God's saving reign among the nations, the forgiveness of sin, Jeremiah 31, 34, and a new creation, Isaiah 65, 17. The hope of the prophets is found in the new covenant. Within the Old Testament, the new covenant is national. We see this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40, Jeremiah 33, 6 through 16, Ezekiel 36, 24 through 38, and Ezekiel 37, 11 through 28. And the new covenant is also international. It will include Jews and Gentiles, and its scope is universal, thus fulfilling the Abrahamic promise. Isaiah projects the ultimate fulfillment of the divine promises in the new covenant onto an ideal Israel, namely a community tied to the servant of Yahweh located in a rejuvenated new creation. We see this in Isaiah 65, 17 and 66, 22. This quote unquote ideal Israel picks up the promises to Abraham and is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenants that God established with Adam, with the patriarchs, with the nation of Israel, and with David's son. What is new about the new covenant? Jeremiah 31 verses 29 through 34 speaks of newness by a change in the structure and nature of God's people because of the work of its greater covenant mediator. Let's look at those respective changes. First, the new covenant changes the structure of God's people. Under the old covenant, God dealt with his people through specially called leaders. The Old Testament does pay attention to individual believers as evidenced in the remnant theme. But in general, the people's knowledge of God and their relationship with him depended upon specially endowed leaders. The entire nation benefited when these leaders did right, and they suffered when they did not. Thus, the Old Testament doesn't emphasize God's Spirit being poured out on every individual believer and empowering them, but rather the Spirit being poured out distinctively on prophets, priests, and kings. But Jeremiah signals a structural shift in the covenant community where all of God's people will know him, from the least of them to the greatest. By this change, the new covenant raises every member of the covenant to the same relationship with God through the universal distribution of the Spirit, which is in accordance with Joel 2, 28-32 and Acts 2. The Messiah, being the first to be anointed with the Spirit, see this in Isaiah 11, 1-3, 
Isaiah 49, 1 through 2, Isaiah 61, verse 1 and following, this Messiah will in turn pour out his spirit on all flesh, namely everyone within the covenant community. You see this in Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, Joel 2, 28 through 32, and also we see it foreshadowed in Numbers 11, 27 through 29. Second, the new covenant changes the nature of God's people. Jeremiah distinguishes between the old and new covenant based on the heart condition of its members. We see this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, super important passage. Whereas only a remnant under the old covenant truly knew Yahweh in a saving way, God changes the heart of every new covenant member. This is the circumcision of the heart. We see this in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, Deuteronomy 10, 16, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 4, 4, 9, 25, and Romans 2, 29. This does not mean that Old Testament saints were not regenerate. Instead, it implies that the new covenant people will all be regenerate. The old covenant community was a mixed people of those who knew God in a saving way, those who did not know God in a saving way. See this in Romans 9, 6. But this reality is not true of the new covenant community. The entire new covenant community will savingly know God. Third, the new covenant changes the sacrifice made for God's people. The old covenant offered the forgiveness of sins through the priestly slash sacrificial system, which was never intended to save. Hebrews 10.4 shows us this. The old covenant sacrifices were designed to remind God's covenant people of their sinfulness through repetition. Yet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, God will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We see this also in Hebrews 10, 17. Under the new covenant then, a better priest will offer a better sacrifice, Psalm 110, and everybody in the covenant will be justified before God. And now we move on to our major point four, how the Old Testament covenants are fulfilled in Christ and the new covenant. As the New Testament begins, fulfillment is in the air. What the Old Testament anticipated and predicted is now here in Christ. Our Lord's identity is that he is the eternal son of the Father and the promised Messiah who has come to restore humanity's vice-regent rule over creation. Jesus teaches us that he is now fulfilling all of God's covenantal promises and establishing God's promise kingdom through new covenant by his obedient work and the pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost. Also, Jesus reminds us that his work is to redeem a new people for that kingdom, his church in Matthew 16, 18. Let's think of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises in three steps, which in turn allows us to think properly about the continuity and discontinuity in God's plan. So first, how Christ fulfills the previous covenants. Second, fulfillment in terms of inaugurated eschatology. And third, how the church is new 
and receives all of God's covenant promises in and through Christ. So first, Messiah Jesus fulfills the Old Testament covenants. From the opening verse of the New Testament, Jesus is identified as, quote, the son of David, the son of Abraham, end quote. And this is from Matthew 1.1. Now, this is significant. Jesus, the eternal son made flesh, John 1, 1 through 2, John 1, 14, has not only become the first man of the new creation, but also in him, all of the previous covenant mediators, typological structures, and promises have reached their fulfillment. 2 Corinthians 1, 20. Think about how the New Testament presents Jesus's identity, especially tied to the covenants. Jesus is the divine son who comes to save his people. And by virtue of his incarnation and work, he becomes the son, the antitypical fulfillment of the previous covenant mediators, thus securing our eternal redemption by his obedient life and death. See this in Romans 1 through 4, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In his incarnation and cross, Jesus becomes David's greater son, who inaugurates God's kingdom and is now seated as the Davidic king, leading history to its consummation at his return. You see this in Matthew 1, 1, compared with Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Acts 2, 32 through 36, Romans 1, 3 through 4, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Hebrews 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110. Jesus is also the true Israel who fulfills Israel's role and brings Israel's exile to its end in a new exodus and who obeys where Israel disobeyed. See this in Matthew 2, 15, going off of Hosea 11, 1. Matthew 3, 15 through 17, going off of Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, Isaiah 42, 1, and Isaiah 61, 1. We see it in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, John 15, 1 through 6, coming off of Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Jesus is Abraham's true seed, Galatians 3, 16, who constitutes all those in him, the true children of Abraham and inheritors of all the Abrahamic promises. Romans 2, 25 through 29, Romans 4, 9 through 22, Galatians 3, 6 through 9, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, and Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Moreover, Jesus, as the last Adam, fulfills the foundational role of Adam and the creation covenant. Romans 5, 12 through 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, Hebrews 2, 5 through 18, and Hebrews 8 through 10. In his conception, the Spirit brings about the beginning of the new creation. Luke one thirty five. see Genesis 1 through 2. In Jesus's baptism, the promised Messiah receives the Spirit in full measure, coming from Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, Luke 4, 14 through 21. And this promised Messiah pours out the Spirit on his people. You see this in John 20, 21 through 23, Acts 2, 1 through 36, Acts 10, 44 through 48. Galatians 3, 1 through 6, and Galatians 3, 26 through 4, 7. Thereby, he fulfills Old Testament expectations of the new covenant. In fact, in Christ's bodily resurrection, the new creation is now visible and physical. No wonder in Christ, 
we are now new creation by the Spirit, both individually, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and corporately as the church, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. In every aspect of Jesus's life, ministry, and cross work, he fulfills all the promises, instruction, and typological patterns of the previous covenants. Yet, it's important to think about the nature of this fulfillment in terms of inaugurated eschatology. So second, now, inaugurated eschatology and fulfillment in Christ. The New Testament clarifies how Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament promises and covenants. The Old Testament prophets speak of the one coming of the Lord and Messiah to consummate all things. This one coming will result in the end of the quote-unquote present age, which is characterized by sin and death and opposition to God, and the beginning of the quote-unquote last days, or the age to come, which is characterized by life, forgiveness of sin, the defeat of God's enemies, and the arrival of a new creation. Additionally, the Old Testament prophets think of the age to come in terms of an entire package. Minimally, when the Lord and Messiah come, we will see such things as the arrival of God's kingdom, the pouring out of the Spirit, a new temple, the full forgiveness of sin, the judgment and defeat of God's enemies, resurrection life, eschatological rest, a restored Israel, a transformed people comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles, and a new creation. The New Testament teaches the same truths, yet it modifies the redemptive historical timeline to speak of two comings of Christ. In his first coming, Jesus appears as Lord in Christ and brings all that the Old Testament associates with the quote-unquote age to come into this present age in principle. Yet the consummation of this age to come awaits the second coming of Jesus. Between these two comings, Scripture teaches that Christ is currently reigning over his creation kingdom. The realities of life in the age to come have already come into this present age, but not yet in full. What is true regarding the already not yet dynamic of Christ's rule is also true of the entire package of prophetic anticipation of the quote-unquote age to come. For example, because Jesus is risen and exalted Davidic King and Lord, he pours out the promised spirit on his new covenant people in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. You see this in Acts 2, 32 through 36. You can also see Luke 24, 46 through 51, and John 14, 15 through 17. Yet the present gift of the spirit is the deposit and guarantee of our future inheritance, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. The reception of the Spirit signals that the Old Testament restoration promises, first given to Israel, are now taking place in Christ and the church, which entails that everyone in Christ has the Spirit and now participates in the promised age. Or think of other New Testament promises which are now here yet await their final consummation. In Christ, we are now forgiven of our sin and partakers of new covenant blessings. Jeremiah 31, 34, Romans 3, 21 through 26, Romans 8, 1. Yet, 
we will still publicly stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Presently in Christ, we are raised from spiritual death to life, adopted, redeemed, reconciled, and holy. Yet we still await our bodily resurrection at Christ's return, the full benefits of our adoption and inheritance, and our glorification. Presently in Christ, New covenant believers are now individually and corporately God's temple and dwelt by the Spirit. Yet, we still await the new creation where there is no temple because of the Lord and the Lamb in Revelation 21-22. Even the new creation promise is fulfilled in an already-but-not-yet way. Our Lord is the first man of the new creation in His incarnation and resurrection. And in union with Christ by the Spirit, we individually and corporately are now new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Ephesians 2, 1-22, although we await the consummation of all things. Also, note how the promise of a transformed people participates in the already not yet dynamic. The prophets anticipate that Messiah's new covenant people, believing Jews and Gentiles, will not be like Israel, Jeremiah 31, 29-32. God will circumcise their hearts, Deuteronomy 31-6, Jeremiah 31-33. He'll do this by the Spirit, Ezekiel 36, 25-27, Ezekiel chapter 37. The Spirit will empower slash gift the entire community, Joel 2, 28-32, so that all will know God savingly, Jeremiah 31, 34, and all will experience the forgiveness of sins, Jeremiah 31, 34. In Christ, this is fulfilled in us individually and corporately. A Christian is now no longer in Adam, but in Christ, which entails that all the new covenant blessings are ours now, although we still await our glorification and resurrection bodies. Why is inaugurated eschatology significant in debates over theological systems? It's because although inaugurated eschatology is widely accepted within evangelical theology, dispensational and covenant theology often apply it inconsistently at specific points in their systems. For example, dispensationalism distinguishes Israel from the church ontologically so that in the future, national ethnic Israel must receive certain promises tied to the land distinct from believing Gentile nations. In this scheme, the church is not viewed as the true eschatological Israel who receives all of the promises, including the inheritance of the land fulfilled in the new creation. So, when Jeremiah's new covenant promise addresses the house of Israel and Judah, Jeremiah 31.31, but in the New Testament, this very promise is applied to the church in Hebrews 8, many dispensationalists explain this away by appealing to inaugurated eschatology. They would say that in the already, the new covenant is spiritually applied to the church, but in the not yet, the new covenant will be applied literally to national Israel in the physical land. In the future, Israel, as a nation, will receive her quote-unquote distinct promises tied to the land, different from the promises that are given to the believing Gentile nations. This view has two problems. First, it assumes a faulty understanding of the Israel church relationship 
because it doesn't properly follow the Bible's covenantal progression. It doesn't start with creation and Adam and then situate Israel and her role within the covenantal storyline. It doesn't consistently see how Christ, as David's greater son, is the true Israel and last Adam, and how he fulfills all of God's promises. In turn, it fails to view Messiah's people, the church, consisting of believing Jews and Gentiles, as the recipient of all of the Old Testament promises equally as the one new man in Christ, according to Ephesians 2. Second, regarding inaugurated eschatology, dispensationalism fails to see how all new covenant realities are now here in Christ and applied to the church in principle. We can't simply apply spiritual blessings to the already and physical blessings to the not yet. Both are present now, although the fullness of both still awaits the consummation. On the other hand, covenant theology insists that the church, like Israel, is a mixed community comprised of those who genuinely believe and those who do not genuinely believe. But this view conflicts with the Old Testament expectation that Messiah's people will be a regenerate people. Everyone will know the Lord savingly. Some covenant theologians admit that Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 anticipates such a people, yet they explain the mixed nature of the church by appealing to inaugurated eschatology. So they would say presently, the church is a mixed community of those who know the Lord and don't know the Lord, but in the future, it will be fully all regenerate, comprised of only those who know the Lord. This view also has two problems. First, it doesn't sufficiently account for the relationship of Christ to his people. Through covenant progression, the relationship between the covenant mediator and his seed is transformed in the new covenant. In the previous covenants, the relationship is more biological and physical, but now in Christ, the relationship is spiritual, namely, it's of the Spirit. One is in Christ and in the new covenant not by physical circumcision, but by spiritual rebirth and faith. Second, covenant theology fails to see how all new covenant realities are now here in Christ and applied to the church in principle. Now that Christ has come, one is either in the new covenant or not. And to be in the new covenant entails that one now knows God, is forgiven of their sins, and is circumcised in heart, even as we await the consummation in the not yet. And now the third point. In Christ, the church receives all of God's promises. The relationship between Christ and his people is inseparable. For this reason, the church receives all of God's promises in Christ. Two entailments follow. First, the church is part of the one people of God, the elect, across time, but covenantally, the church is new and constituted as a regenerate people, pace covenant theology, that is, against covenant theology. Second, the church is God's new creation that remains forever, consisting of Jews and Gentiles who in Christ equally and fully receive all of God's promises. Against dispensationalism, the church is not a parenthesis in God's plan. 
the church is not a present-day illustration of what national Israel and Gentile nations will be in the consummation as recipients of quote-unquote distinct blessings. Three points warrant these entailments. First, there's only one people of God over time who are saved by grace through faith in God's promises grounded in Christ alone. Evidence of continuity between Old Testament and New Testament saints is in the language used to describe each. We see this in Romans 1, 1 through 2, Romans 1, 11, Philippians 3, verse 3, 7, and 9. Descriptions of Israel as God's covenant people are applied to the church through Christ. There's a number of verses here. Exodus 19, 6, Deuteronomy 32, 15, Deuteronomy 33, 12. Isaiah 43, 20 through 21, Isaiah 44, 2, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Hosea 1, 6, Hosea 1, 9 through 11, Hosea 2, 1 and verse 23. You can also see Romans 9, 24 through 26, Galatians 3, 26 through 29, Ephesians 2, 12, 2, 19, Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, Hebrews 8, 6 through 13, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Also, the language of assembly is applied to both Israel and the church. Deuteronomy 4.10, Isaiah 2, 2-4, Matthew 16.18, 1 Corinthians 11.18, Hebrews 10.25. And also the church, comprised of Jewish and Gentile believers, is described as the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. Second, the church is covenantally new and constituted as a regenerate people. Alongside Jeremiah's depiction of a transformed New Covenant people, which the New Testament applies to the church in 1 Corinthians 11, 25, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, Hebrews chapters 8 through 10, alongside this are other truths that underscore the church's newness. For example, the church is viewed as an eschatological and gathered community that's identified with a quote-unquote age to come, which has arrived in Christ and is consummated at his return. The church's identity is not with this present age, but with the saving reign of Christ that is now here. Those who have placed their faith in Christ are now citizens of the new slash heavenly Jerusalem, transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ with all the benefits of that union. And see Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Thus, To participate in these realities now is another way of saying that the church is, by definition, part of the new creation, consisting of people who are raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 2, 5-6, Colossians 2, 12-13, and Colossians 3, 3, which is only true of regenerate people. Furthermore, in Christ, the church is God's new temple. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Ephesians 2, 21, Hebrews 3, 6, 1 Peter 2, 5. As God's temple, we have direct access to the Father by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 18, Hebrews 10, 19-22. Something new in contrast to Israel. As God's temple, the Spirit indwells each person. But this description is only true of regenerate people. Romans 8, 28 through 39, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Third, the church is God's new creation slash humanity that remains forever, 
comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles who equally and fully receive all of God's promises in Christ. Ephesians 2, 11-22 teaches this truth. Gentiles, who were once outside of Israel, Ephesians 2, 11-12, now in Messiah Jesus are recipients of all of God's promises. By Christ's work, the law covenant, which purposely separated Jews and Gentiles, is fulfilled. The result? Both Jews and Gentiles are now reconciled to God and to each other by entering a new covenant, and they both together inherit the same promises. See Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Paul is forthright. The church is new. See 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. The church transcends the old entities, although unbelieving Israel and disobedient Gentiles continue to exist. The church is not simply a replacement of Israel or a renewed instantiation of it or one phase in God's plan to end in the future when God returns to his previous plan for Israel and the nations. God's eternal plan always anticipated the creation of the church. Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. What makes this possible is Jesus, who fulfills God's promises and applies them to his people. Further evidence that the church receives all of God's promises is how Old Testament restoration promises for Israel are applied to the church in Christ. See Acts 1, 6, Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, Acts chapter 10 through 11. That is why in Christ and the church, all of God's promises are now being fulfilled. Compare Exodus 19, 6 and 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. The church is Abraham's offspring, Romans 4, 9 through 22, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. The church is comprised of true Jews by heart circumcision, Romans 2, 25 through 29, Philippians 3, 3. The church is the one new man, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. The church is from the same olive tree, Romans 11, 17 through 24. And the church is part of the 144,000 who symbolically refer to the entire church, Revelation 7, 1 through 8 and 14, 3. Captured in scripture's final vision, the church is Christ's bride, the heavenly Jerusalem, whose foundation is the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And Revelation 21, 9 through 14, the church is an international people, Revelation 5, 9 through 10, who inherit the new creation in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Does this mean that God is finished with ethnic Israel? In Romans 9 through 11, Paul says, no. Although people debate over whether ethnic Jews are now being converted throughout church history, or whether we still await a mass conversion at the end of history, contra dispensationalism, this text in Romans 9 through 11 says nothing about Israel as a nation receiving outstanding promises in the millennium and the eternal state distinct from believing Gentiles. Instead, what scripture teaches is that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ and his people, the church. Conclusion. Here, in brief, is progressive covenantalism. On gospel issues, Although there is more agreement than disagreement with covenant and dispensational theology, progressive covenantalism insists that at the center of God's plans and purposes 
is Christ Jesus. In him, all of God's promises are yes and amen, 2 Corinthians one twenty, And by grace, we as the church are the beneficiaries of his glorious triumphant work.